Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. The Commercial Disco is sponsored by CSIRO, which is very exciting, the Australia's National Science Agency. Today, we're talking to Rachel Slattery. Rachel is a serial entrepreneur, is the way I'm going to describe her, and has been running Slattery's for 22 years. Slattery's was the company behind the original Tech 23, I'm going to say. It's been running Agile Australia for many years and has just launched a new project called Silver Futures. Hi, Rachel, how are you going? I'm well, James. Nice to see you. So this is my question to you. We just had this short discussion before we started as to what's your title, and I think you said you're director of Slattery's. What's wrong with CEO? (laughs) What's wrong with founder or, you know, what's wrong with one of those other words? They're loaded somehow? Yeah, I've always been a bit funny about titles. I don't know why. And then I, I think also the cult of the founder and anyway, I'm not sure. I think it's a personal thing that I just don't like being defined. I don't know, to be honest. Um, over the years, people have tried to use different titles around me and I, I haven't been good with them. So Slatteries or Team Slats, I think you've self-referred <laughs> to it, right? You know, it's very well known in the tech and innovation space, particularly in deep tech and that really kind of science-oriented area as in communications, in business development, in event programs you run. I think you called the company an event company, but I think it's somewhat more than that. So Team Slats, how did you get involved in that kind of pointy end of the science communications, well, science and technology? Well, I came out of publishing and I suppose I was always interested, book publishing that was, and I sort of started chasing what I called at that stage the internet. (laughs) And so I sort of said, I'm going to move to Sydney to find the internet, which I did. I did find the internet and I started working sort of on the glossier side, I suppose, on projects like Britannica.com. Oh my goodness, remember that before, you know, and things like that in Sydney. And I kept being drawn to what I would have called at that stage the ugly end. So even though I was working on sort of the pretty end, in terms of a lot of the dot-com sort of stuff, I kept being drawn to ugly tech. And it just, oh, it was like a beacon, James. I kept thinking, oh, my goodness, what's this, what's this? And it just flowed from that. And I suppose I saw that the introvert, mostly, the people that were working on a lot of this, you know, deep, ugly, I called it ugly. I don't know whether the word deep was even in, <laughs> in use then. And we're doing really amazing things and things that could change the world. And yet they really didn't have the time or, or perhaps even the skills to sort of communicate what they were doing. So that's, I think, where my passion for the deep tech arena came from, was just realising just how much it could transform and has transformed so much of how we live and work and play. So what defines ugly tech? I mean, I suppose it would be 
ugly is in the eye of the beholder, I suppose, but it seems, <laughs> I guess we all know what the shiny stuff is, right? But there is technology that is definitely not ugly in other places in the world that historically may have been treated as if it was a little bit ugly in this country. Yes. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's actually very true. And I think that was why we needed it more, perhaps, or all the innovators in those areas needed it. I think universities, from what I remember of those early days, you know, what was being done in universities didn't sort of seep out as much as in other parts of the world. And I think that's changed a lot. Yeah, I think that's a a good question. I think also the fact is that a lot of people doing or working on really deep things that, you know, matter a lot to the world often need to collaborate with a lot of different people and it also takes a hell of a lot of time. And so it's that saying, isn't it, of it's amazing what gets done if no one's worried about taking the credit for it. I think, you know, in the end, a lot of the deep world relies on lots and lots of people, you know, hitting something really hard to just make the smallest amount of difference. And so deep tech needs patience and sort of, I suppose, careful nourishment. Okay, so let's talk through Tech 23, which is an ongoing and famous marker on the calendar each year. What were you trying to do when you set it up? And if you think about your first Tech 23 to your your last Tech 23, how did the landscape change? Um, How did your kind of audience composition change? How did people's interests change? Mm, That's a good one. Well, there are a couple of obvious things. In 2009, there was only one woman founder on the stage. So out of the 23 companies that were showcased, only one of them was a female. There weren't many investors in the room. In fact, there were no real investors that were looking for deep tech at that stage. Investors came (laughs) and started to come a lot more after that, but it was much more a curiosity, I think, in those early days. And then, as you know, that's completely changed. I think entrepreneurs or the people actually with the great ideas, so the innovators themselves, had very little scaffolding. The universities didn't care about what was going on for the most part, and they didn't have any sort of ecosystem on which to call on. They didn't have the mentoring. They didn't have the working spaces, accelerators, except for, of course, ATP Innovations, which was what Cicada was previously called. And that was actually considered to be, you know, really on the edge of tech, (laughs) what they were doing. It wasn't considered anywhere close to mainstream. Yeah, 100%. So from that early day to today, I mean, the landscape in this country has completely changed, right? It's very hard to see the similarities. And as you say, investors in deep tech, it's kind of, it's a thing in a big way now. Oh, massive. I mean, it would be interesting. I, I don't know enough about what's changed in terms of timelines, but it seems to me that there's more knowledge now around how long some of these areas take. You know, even what we're seeing now with quantum, that people are realising this isn't going to be turned around in a few years, which is what, of course, was happening, as you know, with a lot of the shiny tech early on, that, you know, people could really make a lot of, you know, they could make an investment and a few years later chime out with quite a great return. And that's just not the case with deep tech, which is why I think it took a while. Um, The other thing I think that's really interesting is that it often needs people that understand the tech itself 
and that's hard. And I think investors, even with some of the shiny things, felt sometimes that they wanted to know more before they invested. So I think what's happened is we've seen, you know, almost a collective increase in the knowledge around deep tech, but also the value that it brings, not just to Australia, but, you know, globally, it's it's a game changer for many industries. From that first Tech 23, sorry, I'm really testing your memory now, but with the institutions, the institutional researchers, CSIRO, the various universities, were they all a bunch of islands? Yes. Or was there a reasonable interconnectedness? No. So very different from what we're seeing today, where they are generally. Yes, very different. And actually, from my memory, there wasn't even someone you could contact to find entrepreneurs. There could have been a student club that actually had some of them, but most of them you were going straight to department heads. So I remember, you know, emailing department heads at certain universities that I knew to sort of see if they had people we could find. And to be honest, a lot of the companies in 2009 are not actually classed anywhere near deep tech. And we started Tech 23, I think the words we used was favouring deep tech. And look, I never wanted Tech 23 to be just deep tech. I suppose for me, it was about what can great ideas do to make great change or make as in good change. And so some of those earlier ones, like 2009, Culture Ant was there. Now, I don't think Culture Ant would be considered deep tech, but in terms of what they can do for workplace health, you know, that was game changing. And it was the start of a whole new wave of metrics that we've seen for employee well-being. I think that year or the year after, we had We Are Hunted, which sold to Twitter, which is quite hilarious. But that was sort of the start of how we were going to search for music and content. So it was about disruption, I think, more in my brain, but assuming that most of it was going to take tech that had strong IP around it. So I suppose I sort of saw the differentiation around ideas rather than execution. So even though, of course, there's lots of people wiser than me that would tell you most companies need both of those. I think for the Tech 23 companies, I really wanted companies that had a really great idea and then might need help with the execution. They hadn't quite got that bit working. Some of them had, of course, but you know, in those early days, that was definitely part of my thinking that execution was where we needed to get some sort of groundswell around it, I suppose, you know, and build the ecosystem. Oh, it's the ecosystem. When you're describing 2009, it's like you're describing a different planet. It's just so much has moved on since then. And of course, there's so much still to do. Just before we move on, a couple of things. You have passed the baton, the Tech 23 baton, to Cicada, which is now running that program, which is great that it's still going. I want to ask you, over those years, any favorites that have stuck out? Any companies? No, so many. But you know what's funny is most of my favorites, I think I've said this before, is Most of my favourites are the ones that didn't make it. So why? Because I think we're not great at calling out and sort of learning or reflecting on which ones didn't make it and why and learning from that. So I think when I look back at some of them, I think some of them were before their time. I think some of them were too ambitious for a country that wasn't quite ready for them. I think the stars didn't align. Like there's lots of things. But I think, you know, I still remember the passion and the sort of cleverness behind a lot of those ideas that didn't make it. And then I suppose what's interesting is what those people then do next. (laughs) Because I think it's often the case that people 
will get back up again and do something pretty amazing the next time or the next time. And so, yes, I sort of see some of those people going on and learning. And of course, they're still very young. So <laughs> I wait with bated breath to see what happens next. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you speak with great fondness of these companies. I mean, I've always thought you're someone who's really rooting for the local guy to make good and take his stuff to the world. Is that something that drives you? We did quite a lot of work for Syro in the early days of slaps. And do you remember Jeff Garrett? Anyway, there was a joke that um, because I thought he was such a great speaker and one of the people that worked for him at the time said, yeah, he's only got three speeches, Rachel. I've heard them all 76 times. You, on the other hand, have heard his three great speeches. But, you know, I think that's what happens when you're a CEO. You actually have to have these core messages. And one of the stories he told, which has stayed with me, was um, about his time in South Africa trying to get people to understand how to make improvements in mining tech. And they just couldn't stop people being killed. And he one day just sent all the researchers down. And things from that time, he thinks things started to change. And his point was with that is that innovation walks on two legs. And I love that saying because I think innovation does walk on two legs and the people actually doing it are people, you know, straddling their lives, straddling friendships, relationships, and trying to often do amazing things. And so, you know, events are one place and one way that you can build community and build connections and some of the people that have met over the years I would never have thrown them together but that's the magic they get together and they can give each other support and often learn from each other and do amazing things and yeah I get great comfort out of that but I also am buoyed by that it brings me great joy actually James (laughs) for want of a better word. Oh that's fantastic. During that period, right, from 2009 until now, there's been, I don't know how many governments have come and gone in that time, how many ministers have come and gone, how many programs, how many speeches have been made, all of those things. There's been a sort of a continuum of progress, if you like, in terms of the interest that the mainstream has started to show in some of these areas and in entrepreneurship and innovation in general. When you look at that, what was the most fertile ground as far as government policy, where messages were getting through, where industry was firing on all cylinders? Oh, that's a hard one. I suppose I'm a tough customer with government because one of the things that was so wonderful about Cicada's adoption, I assume I can call it that, it's my child that, you know, we've passed the baton, is that they've got really great connections with lots of different governments now because they're going national a bit more in their ambitions. But it is a really difficult one because I sort of think a lot of things get wasted in state politics, you know, as in between the states. And a lot of these challenges are just so massive. So I get a bit impatient myself (laughs) and patience is sort of virtue with the state governments just constantly almost competing for some of the glory. Oh, they yeah. They 100% compete. <laughs> yeah, but for the glory of it rather than the yeah. for just doing the hard work. So I'm hoping that with Cicada, who, as I said, has great connections, Tech 23 has always been national and I think it's important to stay national. And I think Ed Husig, he's going to be a great minister for that because I think he sees the national and hopefully the states will, you know, but I, yes, I, I'm sorry, I, I can't call out a time really. <laughs> Wow, so cynical. But yes, I guess there's two sides to that. The states, they compete, so that's a good thing. Competition is good. 
But this notion of a Team Australia is farcical in the face of states setting up their own investment offices in locations all over the world and offering incentives to companies to, to come and settle in their state rather than... Yes, exactly. And then there's the where's the building, the local industry. Okay, let's not be too down on government. So let me move on. So <laughs> Agile Australia, so this is where curious minds come together to find better ways to work, I think is... If that's not the tagline, it's close to it. <laughs> that is. Thank you. Okay. So to me, that's kind of an evolution of what you're already doing with Tech23. Just talk us through that because Tech23 is kind of mission accomplished in so much as the market has evolved so much, it makes sense for it to move on somewhere else. Now, Agile Australia, you would say the stuff that Agile does was a complete unknown to the great Australian community. And now it's not so much of an unknown, like the lean startup and all the rest of it that goes with it. Well, that's actually an interesting point because I suppose I found both of them, both loves sort of grew up sort of side by side. The first Tech 23 was actually in the same year as the first Agile Australia conference, weekly. And yet I found that Agile Australia in my work with startups. So when I first started looking in the startup community, Agile was sort of talked about a bit there. But it was also coming out of work we were doing with ThoughtWorks, who was the leading agile consultancy that had globally that had set up in Australia. And I suppose it made me realize that for organizations to feel ready to take on innovation, they needed to change the way they work. And I think that's still the case in Australia. I think agile is a way for them to innovate. It's a way for them to look at changing how they work so they're more open to innovation. So Yeah, and open to change, which is also the other point, you know, what we've seen in the last few years. So Agile is all about the people making better ways of working. So it really is. It's sort of similar. No one owns Agile. No one owns an approach. And that's what I also love because it's a very broad church and there's a lot of people with very good intentions under that umbrella that are trying to humanize work in lots of different ways. I hate the word Actually, I can't believe I even used that humanizing work. You know, of course, it should be humanized, but it's used all the time as if, you know, but it's sort of true in a lot of organizations. They aren't kind and they're not, you know, letting people, they're not trusting people and they're not enabling autonomy. And, you know, so yes, maybe we do need to put it down to that point of, you know, just making it humane in that fundamental form would be great. That is humanizing work as in the, the internal processes of work. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's used a lot by big companies. In fact, I think I'm probably not going to mention a bank, but I think they've actually got it in their tagline. So it is interesting just how far people have felt, well, disconnected their felt from their workplaces. And I think we forget that. All the discussions around whether we should work remote or not work, you know, as if it was all perfect beforehand is sort of a bit, you know, it's sort of forgetting where things were, I think, before COVID. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point. Like that agile movement, for one of a better term, what happened with COVID? When we talk about anything, COVID's had an impact. So in the agile space, what's the thinking now around work from home? Well, interestingly, agile is, as you know, being driven by tech and a lot of tech companies are agile. So I suppose, you know, and the biggest one sort of in our backyard is technically Atlassian. But, you know, Microsoft, Spotify, Google, all of them, really run agile ways of working. I sort of think the big thing that I thought was interesting just in terms of discussion is we used to talk distributed teams. So the word distributed, do you remember that? 
and co-located, those words have almost dropped down. So it's almost a given in the last few years that that's how you're working. The only word that's been bandied around a little bit more lately is hybrid. But that's just a replacement for those words anyway. So I think for a lot of big tech companies, they had techie groups maybe in different parts of the world. A lot of these big tech companies actually were already distributed. And so they had worked out different ways of working in co-locations or co-located. So I think the home thing is a different thing. And it's early days. I think that's the other thing with Agile and with everyone and what my uptake, it's just still early days, I think. And the researchers can't really tell us whether it's good for productivity, not good for everyone. Just, you know, you can find a statistic on whatever your opinion is, I think. What do you think? Are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, look, I, I don't have an opinion on that, but I think you make a good point. It is early days. I think it works for some companies. I should say it works in some industries or some disciplines or some parts of companies better than it, it works in others. And I think, you know, that not to sound too fatuous, but that is the observation that many people make. I'm really enjoying talking to you, but I haven't even started the stuff that I intended to talk to you about. Just before we get to that, there is one thing I want to ask you. The stuff that you do is interesting. You always seem to be at the front end of a wave of some kind of thinking. And you're running a company, right? So you can't go to a boss and say, hey, I need some professional development. What do you do to refresh yourself and refresh your ideas and your thinking? And where do you go? Who do you talk to? Do you travel? Do you, how do you do that? What's up? I read a lot, I think. And I reflect a bit, I suppose. I do think sometimes the best ideas are often just sitting under the surface, which is good. And I talk to lots of people. I suppose that's the other thing. I think I told you that I've gone back to study in the last couple of years, which has been really interesting. And what I mean by that is actually formally learning at university again, which has been a good learning curve and a different one from my normal one. Okay, so you're going to have to remind me. Well, I started studying gerontology and that came out, so for anyone listening that doesn't know, because a lot of my friends went, can you explain what gerontology, it's really just a study of ageing. Because I suppose I just kept this whole idea around aging had been percolating for years. I actually started a startup with a co-founder years ago that obviously didn't work or otherwise you'd know about it. And yes, after a couple of years, we realized that we weren't putting enough time or effort into even making it a reasonable failure. It was going to just disappear. So it did. But from that moment on, I was really getting more and more interested. And then COVID just put another layer on in terms of me thinking how many ways tech could help more and it just wasn't. And well, of course it was, but I felt there was more opportunity or more potential there. I felt like it was one area, like the aging thing. I could keep reading about the tech and keep understanding about the tech, but I didn't really understand the challenge enough. So Going back, I started studying at Melbourne Uni, gerontology, just a few subjects. I've got another one studying soon, which is good fun. And it's just giving me more of an understanding of the latest research around ageing. So gerontology is literally the process of ageing. Is this what we're saying? Yeah. And my area is really more social gerontology. And it's interesting because Melbourne Uni's just stopped their Masters of Ageing. There was a Masters of Ageing. And I went looking for around Australia and most of what I learn under gerontology normally is wound dressing and dementia care. But I'm more interested in the role of working and ageing. So as going back with the Agile hat on and tech and ageing and sort of, I suppose, ritual. I'm really interested in ritual 
So I, I find sort of the whole notion of how we change and also a lot of the research, the most current research around how our bodies and our brains age and how that's changed because I think a lot of our narratives and a lot of the things we have in our current understanding is actually given to us by previous generations and it's actually just not true anymore. So it might not have even been true then, but, you know, we actually are the beneficiaries now of a lot more knowledge that we can harness to make our futures healthier. Okay, so you have set up, I won't say founded because this is not a word to use, set up Silver Futures, which just talk us through that. It's focused on age tech, it's focused on longevity. So Silver Futures was another attempt for me to try to reframe the conversation around ageing. And I suppose it's at this stage of distributed. So I've got people helping me in different capacities across a few areas. And we're sort of a loose group and I'm calling out anyone else that wants to help to come to the fore, come and talk to me. But essentially around the same areas as I have always worked, which is sort of tech and innovation and around the sort of people, purpose and work. And I think the two actually do go hand in hand, not just in my head, but in lots of other people's heads, because I sort of feel like technology has changed the way we work and has done so much of that in the last 20, 30 years. When we think about it, my dad couldn't sit on his email at my age and sit on a beach and work. He couldn't. So, you know, things have changed so fast. And I think we haven't really quite understood then what that might mean for our later years. And then, of course, tech can help us actually age differently, even if we're not working. So it's useful for all sorts of things that we haven't even dreamt of yet. So I sort of feel like We've got all this time that previous generations didn't get, and hopefully more of it will be spent in health. So what can tech do to help us live more contributing lives? During those extra years, I'm really interested and fascinated in that. And I suppose I think Silver Futures wants to sort of elevate those that are doing amazing things and also maybe be able to help organisations get their heads around how they might be able to help do amazing things themselves. So it would be a community building program in the same way that the Agile Australia and Tech 23 was? Yeah, look, I'm still working all of that out and sort of building slowly with a lovely group of advisors and mentors and contractors and things. And at this stage, yes, we sort of see there's room for us to help, you know, the tech innovators and the people. But I'm really passionate around the work stuff because I've seen so many people I won't name names, so during Agile Australia community and the Tech 23 community, I've seen lots of people just unhappy in their working lives. And I just think, oh dear, life's too short for that. So I think organizations need to get better at managing all of us at whatever stage of life we're at. Forget the age bit, just whatever stage you're at. And if you're a grandparent that needs flexibility or a young parent that needs flexibility, it's the same solution for the company that they need to find. They need to work out how to do that better. And I think a lot of people haven't even thought about what they're going to be doing in their 70s or 80s. And the chances are for a lot of people in knowledge work, they'll still be working because they love it. But how do they do it more cleverly? How do they do it? and make the most of those years. And still, even though we're sitting, I'm sitting right now, but how do we manage to stay healthy while we're doing all of that? So I think for a lot of us, we'll be requesting the world to give us better options going forward. Yeah, okay. So winding up, I know you did an ecosystem map 
of this area that you've just described. So just tell me what kinds of companies are on that map? Like, what are we doing here in this country? The kind of maps to what you're talking about. Well, look, it's still very early days for age tech. And if people are really interested in it, you know, there's lots of Karen Etkin, who I mentioned actually on the blog around the map, has maps of other countries. So you can actually see what other people are doing. So Canada, for instance, parts of Europe, Israel, you know, are really leading the way. Our map is young and I'm hoping there still might be some companies I haven't found that I can add to it. So, you know, hoping for that too. I think a lot of the age tech companies have centred around aged care in Australia. There's been a lot of focus on aged care and solutions for aged care providers. And often they're focusing on government or governance and compliance and their customer is often their funder. I think what would be lovely to see in that sector, and we're starting to see it with some of the companies that are on the map, are things that are helping with other issues that aged care providers have, which is, you know, around safety, training for their people, and then things like Silver Adventures, you know, which is doing experiences for older people or dementia care. There's lots of solutions that we see in other parts of the world, which will actually just help people in aged care live better lives. But my favourite ones that are coming out in other sectors of the map are around preventative. So we're sort of seeing it now on a national scale, you know, the value of the bowel testing that happens once you're 50. Now, that's really a silver test. You know, I love it. So on your 50th birthday, you know, wait for it. Those of you that are yet to turn 50, there it comes. But that's a monitoring that's really amazing. And I think that sort of monitoring is just going to become more and more ubiquitous with the use of technology. And there are some people doing it that. Australia's always been good with audio stuff. So there's a couple of companies on the map that are going to help people with hearing loss. So I think that's a great one. But I think anything that helps us or prevents us with anything to do with cognitive or physical decline. So a lot of those things, even overseas, people have been getting funding for things like almost like a aerobics site for older people online. (laughs) Yeah, it's hilarious. But on the same level, we haven't seen a lot of that. So we haven't seen more innovative products around fitness or around wealth. A whole new wave of fintech should come, I think. So I think, again, like Tech 23, a lot of the things that happen, you know, when you're overlapping, so, you know, things when people actually are companies that are a bit of one and a bit of another and you sort of see the amazing things that come. We haven't seen many around transport. Like I don't want to be using a walker, but I'm assuming there'll be other transport options for me. And for you, James, <laughs> but anything that helps me with connection, I think. I think that's increasingly that what are the dating sites you could have for when you're older? They've probably got different features. And I think, yeah, things that actually help us predict and manage our health rather than just combating disease at the other end. So I think people haven't thought about the fact that if they use some of these things in their 50s, 60s, 70s, it'll make sure that their health span is actually longer at the other end. Yeah, okay. That's amazing. I guess you start thinking about it and talking about it that uh, you start to draw the line between some of these different areas and, and then more areas appear as you talk. That's quite amazing. And it sounds like Gen X is coming to the rescue again, <laughs> in tech, this time in ageing and longevity. Rachel Slattery, thank you so much for coming on the Commercial Disco. That was a great conversation. 
Rachel is the director at Slater East and the uh, creator of Tech 23, Agile Australia, and now Silver Futures, among a myriad of other things. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, James. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation, and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.